Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. There's a secret country out there that's invisible to most of us. It's called Moneyland. This country doesn't discriminate against outsiders. It's open to anyone, so long as they can afford the entrance fee. It's very big and very important. The country may contain an eighth of all the wealth in the world. It's a virtual place. You can't find it on the map. But it's also a very real, physical place. The person right next to you right now might be living in Moneyland. Or the house next door might be in Moneyland, even though it has a street name and number just like yours. Moneyland is where the world's super rich, its most powerful businessmen, its best connected politicians and its cleverest criminals all hang out. How can we begin to understand this place which we can't really see or measure? Oliver Bullo, an award-winning writer and my guest on this New Money Review podcast, can help us answer that question. So Oliver, um, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Thank you for joining us. That's um, my pleasure. You've written a very well-received book called Moneyland, um, which was published last year. Could you tell me a bit about what Moneyland is and how you get into it? So Moneyland is essentially a secret country available to anyone, provided that they can afford to enter it. It's a very democratic place. It has no um, discrimination related on on race or class or sexuality, uh, gender, anything. Um, anyone can ex- and enter it, provided that they can afford the entrance fee. And once you have bought access to Moneyland, essentially your money, your life, your reputation, almost everything is kept secure in in ways that ordinary people can't afford. So it basically, um, Moneyland provides low taxes or no taxes. It provides legal immunity. It provides good education. It provides um, protection from journalists. It provides almost anything that a wealthy person would want to buy. And anything it doesn't yet provide, um, someone somewhere in the world is working very hard to make sure it can. And how big do you estimate Moneyland is? How do we quantify it? That's a really interesting question, and it's quite difficult to say because the money that is in Moneyland, um, yeah, you know, the money that is colloquially known as offshore, um, is hidden. Uh, it's hidden from us by very imaginative people. Um, so we can't actually see it in order to count it. But if you look at the effect that the removal of this money has on um, global trade statistics, money flow statistics, we can see that even at a conservative estimate, the amount of money in Moneyland is somewhere between 8, 10, maybe 11% of all the money in the world. It, it's, a, it's a lot of money. Let's just take a step back in, in history, if you may. In your book, uh, in the first uh, chapter or two, you go back to the um, financial system that was set up at the end of the Second World War, where under the Bretton Woods Agreement, where the the participating countries agreed to use the dollar as a global reserve currency and to link their own currencies to the dollar, uh, which which in turn was linked to a, f- a fixed uh, price of gold. Uh, that system worked well for a few decades, but by the late seventies, early eighties, it, it broke down, and we've we've got a we've moved to a system where capital flows are basically. Uh, unrestricted, and yet, uh, you know, we, we have um, still a, we're still we still live in a, a world of nation states and national borders and passports and so on. You know, how has this um, situation arisen, and where do you think we might be heading? Well, if you look at the way the global economy works, um, you get a kind of um, what you might call a trilemma, really, which is that 
there are three different things. One of which is um, which different people think are valuable. You've got fixed exchange rates, which exporters really like. So people who have to deal between countries really like there to be fixed exchange rates. And then the second thing people like is is free capital flows, um, particularly um, investors, uh, speculators, people who, who buy and sell shares or bonds. They like to be able to move their capital um, without interruption between countries. Um, and then the third thing, which governments really like, is is essentially um, regulatory autonomy or administrative autonomy. They like governments like to be able to do what they like without essentially um, the rules of the international financial system getting in the way and stopping them from doing what they like. So you got these three things, but the problem with the way that the world works, in fact, the way problem with reality works, is that you can only ever have two of them. If you have regulatory autonomy and uh, free capital flows, you can't have. Uh, fixed exchange rates. If you have fixed exchange rates and regulatory autonomy, you can't have free capital flows. If you have fixed exchange rates and free capital flows, you can't have regulatory autonomy. Your regulations will be entirely at the mercy of the markets. So essentially, it's because of this trilemma, um, the Bretton Woods system decided to restrict capital flows. This was in 1944 at a meeting in New Hampshire. Um, the the leaders of the of the free world decided that that of these three things, the two they wanted were regulatory autonomy and fixed exchange rates. And they were going to restrict capital flows, essentially to restrict speculative capital, to protect democratic governments' ability to do what they wanted and to run the world as they wish. This was essentially a way of trying to prevent an outburst, of a new outburst of fascism and, a, and to try and pr- create prosperity. And it was very successful. Um, while the Bretton Woods system lasted from the sort of late 1940s for three decades or so, you know, you have un- uninterrupted economic growth, you have, um, you know, no global recessions, uh, rising prosperity, um, reducing inequality. You know, when people talk about how great the 1960s were. Um, this is kind of what they're talking about. Um, but it had this flaw at its heart, which is that there are a lot of people who like free capital flows, and they were very annoyed about the fact that you weren't able to move capital anymore. And one of the groups of people that like free capital flows are very rich people who like getting their money out of their home country in order to dodge taxes. And they'd been putting their money in order to avoid the Bretton Woods system. They were essentially taking it in cash and putting it in Switzerland in very large amounts by the uh, mid-1960s. I think about 5% of all the money in Europe was stuck in a hole in the ground in Switzerland. And so basically, you had this big buildup of money outside of the system, outside of the global financial system, offshore, as it was called. Um so and this is the, Oliver. This is the, this is the, uh, the, the the traditional system of a Swiss numbered bank account where only the bank manager and you knew whose account it was. The tax authorities had no visibility into it. They, no one, no one outside you and the bank manager knew exactly. whose money it was. It was basically. it was secret money hidden in a hole in the ground. And basically, Moneyland is born when this money is accessed. A, a group of very enterprising London bankers found a way to essentially create a way of tapping this giant pool of money. So. People who put their money in Switzerland didn't just have to leave it in a hole in the ground with a very low rate of interest, if any interest at all, but instead they could earn a very big return on their money and they could do it anonymously, tax-free, do it anywhere. This is where Moneyland is born. Essentially, wealth breaks free of this system that was created after the Second World War, at the end of the Second World War. And, and So this was the creation of the Eurobond market in the 1960s in, yeah, in, exactly. in London in particular. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's, it, you say it's in London. I mean, it, it was created in London. It didn't really... Exist anywhere. That's the joy of it. It it legally it wasn't in London. It wasn't anywhere. It just was. Um, so that's the, the this this amazing word offshore, which is used a lot, and I think often not really understood what it means. We we think of offshore as being 
it's taking place in the Caribbean, maybe, or in Jersey or, or, or something like that. But but if you go there, offshore isn't there either. Offshore isn't anywhere. In the 60s, it was very crude. You had, you know, a financial institution in London would have literally two books. One would be onshore and the other would be offshore. You know, all the transactions took place physically in the same place, often involving the same people. Um, but one of them would be legally not in Britain and the other would be legally in Britain. Um, things are more complicated than that now um, and much more sophisticated. But the principle remains the same, that the offshore is a legal fiction that allows financial professionals or other professionals to essentially pretend that the actions that they're doing do are not taking place in the location where they are sitting. So, you know, an, an, a really straightforward example of this, if you own property in the UK, but you own it via a shell company in, let's say, you know, the British Virgin Islands, that that property is offshore because it's in the British Virgin Islands, but it doesn't stop it being in London. It's still property in London. You can still walk through the door. You don't need a, a, a plane to get to it. So it, it's a it, it's a legal fiction that essentially allows you to, if you can afford it, to take advantage of various protections in the law that British Virgin Islands can give you that Britain doesn't give you. And that's what offshore is. It's like a, a kind of a legal loophole that allows you to drive stuff through. But it doesn't only involve property or money that's the joy of offshore it's if you are you know a, a wealthy ukrainian let's say a government minister who's got very rich from you know tapping the uh, the health budget or the education budget and you want to keep your children in monaco or, or, or switzerland so they can enjoy the schooling there then your children are essentially offshore yours you've offshored your children um if you wish to protect yourself from journalists writing about you and you hire a london law firm to write threatening letters then you've essentially offshored your reputation. You've put your reputation in the UK. It's a it's a very broad, expandable concept. But it, basically what it means is that if, as a wealthy person, you start using the laws of different countries simultaneously, so you take advantage of favourable provisions in one country in order to influence the internal operations of another country, then you are in Moneyland. That's what Moneyland is. Moneyland is an, essentially a composite um structure which is based on by borrowing from the laws of multiple countries simultaneously you create something that's more powerful than all of them put together you don't necessarily need to travel to some far-flung island to access moneyland it's possible to set up corporate structures that enable you to do this the same thing you know you mentioned as let's say an oligarch buying london property and i listened recently to your comments on the missing crypto queen podcast on the bbc where you you commented on the, the structures that have been set up apparently by the people behind that uh, that particular scam, as it seems to be, uh, that the, they just had a, a series of UK uh, registered companies that were used to obscure the ownership of the of the properties at the end of the chain, and and that was all done kind of in in a in a regulated, you know, pretty regulated financial market uh, using very long standing uh, legal structures. Co- you know, companies have been around for a couple of hundred years, so it wasn't anything particularly complex in that case that allowed the people to access Moneyland. How prevalent is that kind of structuring and, and you know, what do you think could be done about it? I mean, it's, it's astonishingly common. I mean, the use of particularly British shell companies or shell structures, partnerships or whatever, um, to hide ownership of stolen wealth is, it you know, it is virulent. Um, I mean, the, the Danske Bank money laundering scandal um, which was exposed last year, or certainly the, the report about it was published last year. Um, you know, two hundred billion euros extracted from the former Soviet Union moved via Danske Bank's Tallinn branch, um, and into the global financial system. The most common uh, shell company used to own the bank accounts was a British shell company. Um, 
but again this is it's interesting the way they work if you if you analyze them it works very similarly to the eurobond this is like a it's like a digital version of the analog original um yeah the the eurobond was just a piece of paper right it was a, literally an analog thing um it existed you could hold it in your hand that's all very clunky now you have a digital version so a a bank account in 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 Danske Bank in Tallinn was owned by a British limited liability partnership. The British limited liability partnership was in turn owned by two companies in the Marshall Islands. Um, the bank was in Tallinn. The uh, headquarters of the bank is in Denmark. The money is coming from Russia, or Azerbaijan, Ukraine, Moldova, wherever. So you can see this again. This as as with the euro bonds multiple jurisdictions being used simultaneously. With euro bonds, it was Switzerland, the UK, the US. Uh, Luxembourg, Holland, um, Italy, um, with um, the Danske Bank, it was a different group of jurisdictions, but the principle is the same, that essentially, if you are, if you organise your affairs simultaneously via a large number of different jurisdictions, no one jurisdiction can see what you're doing. And this basically means it's very, very difficult for law enforcement or any other regulator to see what you're doing, which means that you get to slip through the net and move your money where you want to move it and, um, and get away with anything, which they're doing. Um, so yeah, it, it happens all the time. Um, literally, but, uh, this is one, one of the, the comments you made in the BBC podcast, "The Missing Crypto Queen," uh, caught my attention, and, and you, you described how it appeared that the people involved in the OneCoin uh, scheme had uh, used British uh, companies, and they, they'd set them up. I think you said for a very limited fee, and, and yet they had failed to provide the. Uh, they then later on failed to uh, find any accounts or uh, company returns, and they'd also failed to provide any personal information of the kind that they're supposed to do when they uh, when they now incorporate a company and and they they managed to get away with that is that is that a uh, is that common i mean is, does no one check up on the information that's provided to companies house when someone sets up a company and, and if this does happen how long does it take for the authorities to click that something is wrong um yeah i mean no one checks at all so if you it's very easy to create a company a company's house it takes you about 15 minutes and costs you I think it's twelve pounds now. I can't remember. I think it's gone down. It was thirteen. I think it's now twelve pounds. Um, so yeah, it takes about fifteen minutes. You'll get your confirmation email through in about a day. Um, that it looks like a very straightforward and, and well-regulated system in that you have to say who really owns the company. You have to say who the directors are. You have to give an address and all this. But but no one checks the information you provide. So it's like an online. It's like registering a Twitter account. You know, you can be, you can have it in your own name and tell the truth about who you are if you want, or, or you can say you're, you know, I don't know, lol's boy one two three and say whatever you like online and no one will know who you are. It's it's like that. It's essentially an online free for all. So yeah, anyone can create a, a a British company, and and you can people can lie very um plausibly. You don't just have to make up a load of uh, nonsense. If you look on the company's house website, there are lots of companies that are owned by. Um, people who 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 just you know they just write silly things there's someone whose name is is triple x stalin that's my particular favorite but there are lots of other ones of people who just make up silly names to create companies with but um but if you create a very plausible looking company then then no one will know it's any different to 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 uh, a, a legitimate company i mean you can you can file you know accounts which look plausible that say they've been audited by an accountant but they're not they're just invented you've 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 invented the accountant you've invented everything because no one checks the information so i mean i i think to my mind the most egregious example that i've ever seen was a, a binary options fraud a big very prolific binary options fraudsters um based in israel who were using british companies uh, registered in liverpool 
to um, to steal you know billions and billions of dollars from very vulnerable people all around the world. It's sort of an early earlier iteration of the OneCoin scam in a way, um, but using a slightly different um, you know supposed technology. But it was all a scam. Um, the the only physical person attached to those companies was a, an Australian called Martin Ponder. So when the police uh, in multiple jurisdictions went looking for who was to blame for these frauds, they went to Martin and Ponder, discovered that he had actually been an early victim of the scam himself. They hadn't only stolen his, nummy, his, his name, <laughs> his money, they'd also stolen his name. So they had put his name on the, on, the account, on the account. So he wasn't just a victim of the fraud, financially speaking, he was also a victim in that now everyone thought he was a criminal. Um, you know, no one checks, there's no due diligence of the accounts that have filed, nothing at all, which means, it, you know, it, it's it's a gaping hole for um, fraudsters to, to, to exploit. And, um, so and so three, three or four hundred years ago, when the uh, East India Company was set up in, in, in London and the Dutch East India Company was set up a little bit earlier in Amsterdam, many of these companies were created by royal charter or by acts of parliament in some countries. You couldn't just go ahead and create a company in five minutes on the internet for thirteen pounds, it was a, it was considered a big deal because it gave certain privileges to the people involved. Um, do you think we're going to see a um, kind of wholesale uh, revision of, of limited liability, the use of company structures? Is there a move for this, or is that just pie in the sky? I mean, it should be said, I mean, the previous system when you had to have an act of parliament to create a company didn't exactly protect against fraud either. I mean, the South Sea Company is, remains notorious as a uh, byword for the most egregious kind of fraud. And that was created with a, an act of parliament. I mean, there will always be fraudsters. It's just that we are making it unbelievably easy for them. Um, you know, a, a company is, is the perfect vehicle for committing fraud with because it looks plausible. You, you manage to remove your fingerprints from the crime that you're committing. Um, there has been, you know, to answer your question, there has been a movement towards a better regulated system over the last 20 odd years. I mean, it, it used to be possible to create a British company without anyone's name on it at all. Um, you know, you could just have a, the comp- the directors could be other companies, the owner could be other companies. You know, um, it, it used to be possible to not say who actually controlled the company. Now you have to say who actually controls the company. It's true, you can just lie. No one actually checks the information you provide, but at least you know, you have to lie a little bit more elaborately than you used to. I mean, okay, this is like baby steps, but it's better than it used to be. Um, you know, I, I'd say there used to be, um, I think under a, I don't know what prime minister we're on now, but maybe two prime ministers ago when it was David Cameron, um, uh, he seemed to have a better understanding of the the seriousness of this issue and to engage with the the financial crime that was being committed a little bit more. Theresa May didn't care, Boris Johnson presumably doesn't even know. Um so, it, you know, it's very much gone off the political agenda, but it's still there. I think there is more awareness of it as an issue than there was. And, and in fact, to be honest, Britain is not the worst offender here. The, the worst offender is the United States. And there is currently a bill, you know, inching its way through Congress that would um, crack down on the on the on the American uh, shell company game, which is very valuable um, and very valuable move i mean there's been movements by the british parliament to force um the, the, the british virgin islands cayman islands anguilla and various other british tax havens to do a better job of what they're doing so the movement of travel is in the right direction um but you know we are so far behind where we need to be and what's astonishing about this is if you think about what a company is actually for right a company it, it's an insurance policy if you have an, an a good idea you and you and you incorporate a company and you basically do your idea not in your own name but via a company what you're doing is is ensuring yourself against going bust because if you go bust you will only lose the company the, the company's money you won't lose all of your money 
Um, and the reason we in society think this is a good idea is because it helps entrepreneurs. We want entrepreneurs to get busy and, and create things and, and help stimulate the whole economy. So society as a whole, all of us are insuring entrepreneurs against their ideas going bad because we've decided that's a risk we want to take for the good of society. So that's fine. That's a very good idea. It's, it, it's very useful. But essentially, what we're allowing by creating anonymous companies is allowing people to buy anonymous insurance policies, um, which if you put it like that, you can say you can insure anything you like and do it anonymously. It's an it's an invitation to burn buildings down. It's so obviously like an a, a invitation for fraud that that no one in their right mind would ever start from here. But this seems to be where we've ended up. And that doesn't that doesn't seem to be this appreciation Um of the damage this is doing. I mean, if you just look at one one kind of fraud, which is a fraud I don't really go into in the book because it's pretty it's pretty whole, small scale, but in, in but in in its individual actors, but the, but the impact is huge. Just VAT carousel fraud, which is a, um, a very technical and rather you know nominally boring fraud about moving things between different countries in the EU, that costs between one and a half and two percent of EU GDP every single year. Right, so that one fraud alone is up to one in 50 of all the euros in Europe, we are losing on that fraud alone. And and that is entirely possible because of shell companies. Without shell companies, this fraud would essentially, well, it would still be possible, but it would be very, very hard. Like, and that is how serious this issue is and, and how much money we're losing as a result of this. And yet no one... You mentioned in your book, um, Oliver, uh, that the, the US is now the biggest tax haven in the world. That surprised me when I first read it, and I think it might surprise a lot of people. What's going on there and why Why do you say that? Well, I mean, it's 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 not necessarily that it's the biggest in the world. Switzerland's probably, I mean, according to the Tax Justice Network, which knows, Switzerland is still the biggest. Um, but the US is is growing fast. So, so sort of seven years ago or so that America was in fifth place. Now they rank America in second place and, and it's rising fast. So uh, probably the next time they rank it, the US would have overtaken Switzerland. Um, essentially, what's happened is, is again, because of a loophole, uh, I think probably an unintentional loophole, other people think otherwise, um, between the way countries exchange information with each other, since the global financial crisis, there's been a lot of effort to try and bring taxes into the net to prevent tax dodging. Um, countries now exchange information with each other about each other's assets. Um Basically, everyone has to exchange information with America, but America doesn't exchange information back again, which now means that, that as it used to be, you used to be able to put your money in Switzerland and keep it safe. Now the place to keep it safe is in um, uh, is in the US. Um, there are different states will offer different ways of keeping it safe. I've just recently published an article um, about South Dakota, which is a very, very treats your money very generously if you put it in trust in South Dakota. It's probably if I were a billionaire and and had to choose where to put my money, I probably would choose South Dakota. Your your money is very, very well secure there indeed, far more secure than it ever would have been in Switzerland. So um the reason America has become a tax haven is because essentially America is now the only country in the world that behaves in the way Switzerland used to behave. Um Switzerland didn't used to tell any country about the money that was in its banks. Now it has to. Switzerland does tell countries about it. The only country that doesn't is now America. So America, yeah, it's it's a it's a massive problem. The Financial Action Task Force uh, is an intergovernmental body that is designed is, is aiming to crack down on uh, the illicit use of money from drug trafficking, arms smuggling, human trafficking, other serious crimes. They say that they want to um, increase the transparency of corporate ownership, and they've introduce some standards that they want uh, countries around the world to implement. What uh, do you think of the prospects for global initiatives like this uh, when they come from governments themselves? Um, 
um, are not good, I think, is my assessment of that. I mean, the Financial Action Task Force was set up in the 1980s um, by the then G7 um, to try and restrict money laundering. The concern at the time was with regard to the drugs trade. It's since had its remit expanded to include terrorism financing and kleptocratic financing and various other things. Um, so it was, if you think about the 1980s, how much money was being moved around, illegal money was being moved around in the 1980s, it was a lot, um, but nothing like as much as there is now. I mean, not a fraction of as much as there is now. Um, so during the lifespan of the FATF, the situation has got astonishingly worse, um, which I think is a pretty strong indictment of the FATF's approach to everything, to be honest. Um, if you look at other issues that were identified as serious in the 1980s around the same time, um, smoking, uh, car deaths in car crashes, both both big public policy priorities at the time. Um, and you look at what's happened with them since, the amount of deaths on the road has gone down by what, you know, fourfold since then. The amount of smoking has gone down massively, particularly in, well, in developed countries anyway. Um, you know, that's what happens if a government wants to do something about a problem. You can see what happens if a government wants to do something, it does something. So that's what happened with deaths on the road or deaths from smoking. With money laundering, the direction travel has been precisely the opposite direction. There's been no um, real meaningful restrictions on it at all. Um, so, so we're likely to, to continue to rely upon the work of non-governmental organisations like Transparency International or Tax Justice or yeah. Corruption Watch or, or, or whistleblowers like the people who leaked the, the information behind the Panama Papers. Absolutely. Um, I think, sadly, the, the essential problem, um, as I lay out in Moneyland, is that the same tricks that are used by criminals, whether that's kleptocrats or mafiosi or drug uh, cartels or whoever, the tricks that they use to move and hide and launder their money are the same tricks essentially that are used by massive corporations or by very wealthy tax dodgers. So the same jurisdictions, the same shell companies, the same individuals that, you know, whether you're a major corporation dumping your money in, in the Caribbean or to, to avoid tax or whether you're a drugs cartel dumping your money in the Caribbean to avoid scrutiny, um, you're using the same people in the same jurisdictions. And anything that, that threatens um, to essentially expose what big Silicon Valley corporations are up to is obviously going to get a lot of pushback in the United States. And that's the only place that really matters. So it's uh, essentially at the moment, um, we need to find a way to somehow persuade governments that cracking down on kleptocracy, money laundering and fraud is more important than keeping the big tech companies and other big corporations using these jurisdictions happy. So far, I don't think anyone's even come close to achieving that. Um, and so, What do you think of the impact of, of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, which have been invented in the last decade and in theory, a kind of a, a, a traffickers or money launderers dream because you can transfer money you know, outside the banking system. But other people have made the, the opposite argument that they, because they, they, the, the, the transaction trade is completely transparent, they're actually quite good in the, for, for, for um, keeping tra- tabs on what's going on. And do, do you have any thoughts on, on that particular I th- technological I th- development? I think they're useful at a more retail level. I think they're probably more useful for, for drug customers than they are for drug cartels. I mean, if you're talking about, I mean, you know, the amount of illicit financial fund, funds every year is estimated by global financial integrity at about a trillion US dollars a year, um, a million times a million. You know, that amount of money, you know, no cryptocurrency in the world can absorb that amount of, fina- of financial flow. It's 
an insane amount of money. Um, so, and, and also if you're moving that kind of money, um, I don't see how you would trust um, essentially any cryptocurrency, any crypto exchange that they won't rip you off, right? It's, you know, if, you, if you've got that much money involved, you want to have a more reliable medium of exchange than a cryptocurrency, to my mind. So I think that's why dollars, euros in particular, but other other um, currencies too, remain most important. I mean, I think it's really interesting if you look at cash money statistics, the amount of money that is being cash money that's used by ordinary citizens is, is, is in precipitous decline. We all use plastic now. Um, and that's much more convenient and much more widespread. I think amount of electronic transactions is now higher in the UK than, than cash transactions. And in the US, it's rising too. But if you look at the amount of cash in circulation in all major world currencies, it's doubled in the last 10 years. Um, that cash is being used by criminals, basically. Um, so the money launderer's asset of choice is $100 bills or large denomination banknotes or, or London property in the name of a Marshall Islands Trust or something yeah, like or, that. Still going to be the or interestingly, um, because of free ports, increasingly physical assets, um, commodities, uh, gold or, or other commodities or, or fine art um, or other very high value objects. You know, you can move them in and out of free ports largely anonymously and keep them there anonymously and tax free. So, so I don't think, I mean, I think crypto is important um, for lower level drug dealers. But when you're dealing with, with large amounts of money, if it were me, I wouldn't trust uh, Bitcoin or any other currency. Because how do you know that you're not going to get ripped off? And if you do get ripped off, who do you come after? You know, whose kneecaps are you going to knock off? Yeah, that's the trouble. Or, or traced a few years later, as several people have find, found out, using Bitcoin to run the drugs, online marketplaces, and eventually got caught. And they, yeah, exactly. they, uh, yeah. So their trail was all online. But I suspect if you're if you're you know the Medellin cartel or whatever, um, and you're essentially running a shadow government operation, you need a more liquid financial product. I mean, that's not to say that Bitcoin isn't going to be amazing or, or, or an equivalent currency in future, but but I'm I don't think we're there yet. Essentially if you're rich enough, any currency is a cryptocurrency. Um so so you don't you, you can hide your identity equally well using shell companies and and, and 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 sort of dishonest lawyers. Um so I think that that remains the the technique of choice. I mean you know very wealthy people are actually quite conservative in terms of you know how they move their money around you know something the world has to change in quite major ways to to force large amounts of money to move um you know we saw that with the global financial crisis the the impact was large but that's how big an in, uh, you know an incident has to be for for the impact to be very significant to my mind uh, just just returning to you know where we started with the discussion about the Bretton Woods framework that was set up after the second world war we've, we're now in this uh, historical period of a, a as you put it a great tension between borderless money that can slosh around the world at will and, and bordered states. So how do you think this, uh, looking forward over the next uh, decade or two, how do you think this tension is going to, you know, is it going to increase further? Is it, are there any signs of being resolved through some new transparency frameworks? What, what do you think are the key things to keep an eye out for the well, I mean, general observer? It's, very, it's really interesting. Um, the kind of core problem that we have, in my opinion, is that globalisation is incomplete. We have globalization for money, um, which is almost almost complete. Um, money moves seamlessly, really. <laughs> I mean, literally, in terms of the euro, it does move seamlessly. And, and, and even in terms of other currencies, it's pretty much seamless. Um, 
very easy to move money, very easy to move money from A to B, relatively cheap, particularly if you're very wealthy. Um, and, and so that's great for people who've got money, but we don't have equivalent globalization for enforcement. Um, you know, even if you look at the, the Eurozone, the money moves seamlessly between countries, but law enforcement doesn't. You know, if you move your money from Portugal to Spain and back again, then you know, the police are going to be tripping over themselves trying to figure out what you've done and it will only have taken you, you know, seconds to do it. Um, and that's the, the the problem that we have to resolve, that it's become so easy to move money and hide money that it's become very, very easy to commit financial crime. Um, so you can resolve that in two ways. You can either de-globalise money or you can globalise enforcement, one or the other, right? Um, you know, that's the, those are the two options. And I'd say politically at the moment, it's hard to see either of those options being palatable to to, to anyone, Um you know, how how in current politics is anyone going to make the point that we need to return to some form of capital controls? I mean, that's just, you know, even Jeremy Corbyn isn't, wouldn't do that in the UK, let alone, you know, Elizabeth Warren. So that's not going to happen. Um, you know, how can you make the case then that we need some form of European FBI or global FBI in the current case? You know, make, imagine making the case to Viktor Orban in Hungary. You know what, we're going to have a European FBI who's going to come in and arrest your ministers if they if they get up to dodginess. That's not going to happen either. So, so we're sort of stuck in this kind of very unfortunate um, middle position of, of, of not having one thing or the other. And I do think that makes life very difficult. So this inherent tension in this unresolved um, system is going to build up and build up and build up, and it will inevitably explode in one direction or the other. Um, and I don't quite know um, how that would work, and, and I don't think it would be nice when it did. I mean, of course, there is a third option. Um, which is that we'll just stay as we are. Um, and if we stay as we are, we're essentially staying or returning to a system as, as things were in the 19th century, when you end up with with total freedom for very rich people and very restricted access to services and rights for poor people. Um, you know, uh, if you look at, say... Yeah, Russia, a, new, a, new feudal, a new feudalism. A new feudalism, exactly. If you look at Russia today, I don't mean the TV channel, I mean the, the country today. Um, if you look at Russia today... Um, in terms of inequality statistics and and sort of standard of living for um, very wealthy people is is very very high on totally European standard for other people much lower life expectancy figures show that very clearly um, inequality is is very similar now to what it was on the eve of the first world war in terms of the amount of assets which are controlled by the top you know not for one percent of the country um, so essentially Russia has gone back to what it was in the nineteenth or early twentieth century. Um, and, and I suppose the, the 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 prospect ahead of us is perhaps the whole world will do that, um, and that's what Moneyland is. Moneyland is a system whereby you have a, a very small group of people who can take advantage of everything the world has to offer, and a very large group of people who are stuffed. Um, and I find that very alarming prospect. I'd rather not have that. Um, uh, so, and that's what I think politicians are not engaging with because of the the dilemma that I laid out earlier. That essentially we need to deglobalize money or, or somehow globalize law enforcement, and neither of those is a palatable option. So, you know, yeah. what are you going to do? Very sobering picture. Sorry. Very sobering picture. It's a bit depressing, isn't it? It is. I mean, you, you, you know, I, I I think this is one of the reasons why. Um, I mean, I'm not sure when this podcast is going to go out, but I think it's one of the reasons why the, the British election at the moment is so is so dispiriting because this is actually kind of the dilemma that we're that's confronting us in the UK at the moment. Um, you know, we are deglobalizing while attempting not to deglobalize, um, and and that has all the consequences. You know, Tesla 
opening their factory in Berlin instead of Britain, for example. It's like, oh, God, why are they doing that? Well, because we're deglobalizing. And, and we've made a decision as a country to deglobalize with the e-leave vote in the EU. And then that has all these other unpalatable consequences that suddenly we're like, oh, God, do we really want to do that or not? And that is will be the way things will be. But then you say, well, if we're not going to deglobalize, we're going to upglobalize. Then you end up with a European FBI essentially coming in and, and stomping around the place and, and trumping our own law enforcement, which we wouldn't want either. Um, so so it kind of has to be one or the other, though. You, ca- you can't stay where we are because you end up with Moneyland. And Moneyland is, 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 I would say, of the three options, is significantly the worst. Oliver, thank you very much for a very interesting chat. It's my pleasure. I, I hope it was helpful. for listening to this new Money Review podcast. The world of money is changing fast. We see new stores of value like cryptocurrencies, new ways of paying each other like contactless and digital wallets, and new ways of recording ownership. New Money Review's articles and our podcast can help you stay on top of what's going on. If you'd like to support our work, you can make a one-off donation or a regular payment. Details of how to do so are on our website, newmoneyreview.com at the bottom right of our homepage.